Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning, moms. We love you. Welcome here. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here. And if you're joining us for the first time on Mother's Day, we want to continue to welcome you as you worship with us. Also, if you're a soccer mom in town for the soccer weekend, we're thankful that you're here as well. I suppose it's uh, tradition for most preaching pastors to go after Proverbs 31 today, which is the ultimate woman, right? But um, I am no ordinary uh, preaching pastor, and so today we're not doing that. Instead, we're saving that for a different time. But today we're continuing with our regular sermon series, which is the book of First John. It's an interesting book because in that setting, what's happening is that the apostle is sort of uh, trying to do multiple things at once. In one sense, he's encouraging and building up the people of the congregation. But in another sense, he's also challenging them to greater good deeds. And in another sense, he's also trying to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's saying, hey, look, there's infiltrators and there's bad guys, and there's people who want to come in and take you out, and there's also people that are on the outside and want to draw you away. And so throughout the whole process, sometimes it's hard in this book to sort of discern, like, what's he doing right now? But in this passage that we're looking at today, it's kind of neat because it's in the middle of the book, and he's kind of doing all three. It's like the litmus test for life. He's basically saying, hey, do you want to know which side you're on? If you want to do better, then by this you will know. By these things. As you line up with this, so are you in Christ. And as you do not, then that means you're outside of Him. We're looking at 1 John chapter 3. Uh, the references in your bulletin are 11 through 24. But I think sort of the verse that sets it up is verse 10 going into it. Uh, that won't be up on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, if you're looking at your phone or uh, electronic device, I'm going to read verse 10, which is going to set it up, and then I'm going to give you the three main points that I'm going to go after today, and then we'll read the rest of the verses. So this is 1 John chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 10. It says this, here's sort of the litmus test. By this, by this it is evident who are the children of God. And who are the children of the devil? Big contrast. Children of God, children of devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there's a litmus test for life. And in the following passage, the Apostle Paul is going to walk you through that. And he's going to say basically this. Okay, starting with point A or point 1, here is the negative example Cain, this is what you don't want to be. Then point two, here's the positive example. This is Christ. Here's what you do want to be. And then point three, here's your next step. For you, the Christian, the command and comfort is this. So that's the way this passage rolls, and that's the way we're going to roll this morning as well. Is Number one is Cain, number two is Christ, and number three is the Christian. Cain, Christ, and the Christian. We have um, the command and the comfort. So if you can just remember the letter C, you'll be able to walk through today's sermon very nicely. Cain, Christ, and the Christian. 
Now then, beginning in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. The apostle says this. This is the Cain section. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Section 1, Cain. Section 2, Christ. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And now the Christian, verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this then is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. 1 John chapter 3, 11-24 Three points and hopefully a simple, simple path for you today. Cain, Christ, and the Christian. Recently I've begun uh, listening to uh, Western by the name of To the Last Man Standing uh, by the author Zane Gray. And it's kind of one of these classic Old West things where you have a family feud of the cattlemen versus the sheep herders. And the reason that they would fight is basically this. You know, the cattlemen are going to look at a pasture and see that as a limited range and they're going to fence it off and keep their cattle here and try to expand their stock and their earnings. Whereas the sheep herders, they're going to be more um, transient, and so they're going to be moving their flocks through various ranges, and they're going to keep going from one place to another. Well, of course, those two concepts or philosophies don't go, to, uh, go together too well. So frequently they come into uh, conflict over uh, the range and, and how to get along, and what you see is nothing less than that in this book. As the plot develops, there are two main families the Isabels and the Jorths. The Isabels are the ranchers and the Jorths are the sheep herders. And as the story goes along, the narrator's sort of reviewing what happened at, in these two families long, long ago. And you learn about the rivalry and you watch it grow and develop. And as the father is instructing the son, there was one line that really stuck out in my head. He was basically given reasons and excuses for all the conflict. And at the end of the day, he said basically this, well, I reckon in a Texan, hate outlives any other feeling. 
And that line jumped out at me. Of course, his excuse was that he was a red-blooded Texan and fought and lived in the open range and ate meat and drank and whatever else. But the reality is, in his life, he had allowed this feeling inside of him to consume him. And as a result, every one of his interactions and relationships were governed by it. He was a red-blooded, hot-tempered son of a gun. This is the way of Cain. As we look at this passage, it's interesting to see that the Apostle John, you know, frequently in the New Testament, they use a lot of Old Testament allusions. Look at the Gospel of Matthew and you'll see constant reference to prophecy and law and scripture and prediction. You look at the book of 1 John and you don't see any of that. In fact, this is the only Old Testament allusion in the entire book to Cain. Why? Would the Apostle John, of all the examples he could have chosen, Moses, Joseph, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whoever, why would he choose Cain? The answer lies in this. John's interest in the story of Cain is basically to illustrate how the brothers destroyed each other. John would have us, New Testament believers, even though we're not in the Garden of Eden, ask each other the question, can that still happen today? Can brothers and sisters in Christ destroy each other? I think we know the answer to this question. Hatred is real, the darkness is strong. And in our day, just as in Cain's, the message and warning is the same. That sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you and you must rule over it. One New Testament commentator says it like this. He says, um, his name is Gary Burge. He says, I have seen in churches, we have a slide of this I think, I've seen in church committees power brokers maneuver themselves over the lives and feelings of others without any hesitation. Some no doubt think that people who get in the way must be eliminated. This is the way of Cain who meets his challenges with brutal efficiency. In fact, as I was translating this passage, it's interesting as you read the first word murdered, the first time it's translated, it actually means to slaughter, as in a sacrificial animal. When Cain comes to his brother Abel, the Bible says he slaughtered him. He tore him apart and cut him up. It paints a grim picture of the reality of sin. John then asks us the question, well, why did he murder him? Verse 12b, John says, why? Well, because his brother was righteous. And this absolutely drove Cain mad. It got inside of him. It festered. He was envious and jealous and the only way he thought to deal with it was to do away with the problem. Boom. 
kill him. Now, switching gears a little bit, let me illustrate this in a different way. And before I do, I'll say it's a close-to-home illustration. And let me apologize in advance for all of us older brothers out there. I am an older brother. I have a little sister. And inevitably, I did the things older brothers like to do their little sisters. In love and encouragement, of course. And a little bit of ribbing as well. Well, my little sister, this relationship has continued in in similar vein. And it was interesting when I watched her go off to college. We lived in Missouri. In Missouri, there's not a lot of lakes, nor are there oceans, and thus no beaches. And she decided, well, I'm going to go off to Florida, and I'm going to go to college near the beach. So she went to Clearwater University where she could be near the beach and enjoy it and stuff like that. And before long, her Facebook page starts showing images, you know, of beautiful beach and, you know, her doing her homework and saying, oh, is this college, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, she can't get away with that. No way, we got to hem this in a little bit, right? What are big brothers for? And consequently, what I did as I saw her enjoying her time on the beach is I decided, ah, I'm going to start pursuing some statistics. I wonder how many... Shark attacks have happened down there near Clearwater Beach. So I started doing a little research, right? And I looked it up. And of course, you know the stats. The reality is you're probably more likely to die from getting run over by an Amish cart than getting eaten alive by a shark. But the reality is, is getting eaten alive is still scary. Even if it's one in a bazillion, you never want it to happen to you. And so I found every shark attack story I could and sent them her way. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a great guy, I know. But the reality is, getting eaten by a shark is scary. Well, here's what happens in the process of anger. What happens is that anger gets inside of you and it begins to eat you alive and eventually it consumes you and tears you apart And eventually there's nothing left of you to consume. And so it moves from within you and goes after someone else. In fact, the second word that the apostle uses in this text is one that is entirely unique to him. The first one for murder was butcher or slaughter. The second word for murder, it is actually literally man killer or man eater. Like a great white shark. It is something that consumes you and destroys you. And then when the frenzy has unleashed and blood has been spilled, it attacks everything around it. It is deadly. It's horrible. It's awful. This is anger. And this is what it does. It did it to Cain and it has done it to so many of us afterwards. That is why when Jesus looks at this, he says, Hey, look, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder. Well, that's great. You haven't actually killed someone. But you know what? I say to you, everyone who is even angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that you have a brother who has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. 
And then come and offer your gift. The only way to deal with the seed of bitterness is to root it out. And the way in which you do so is by forgiveness. And so Christ puts it all together. He says, look, if you're angry, that's murder. And the only way to do it, deal with it then is go and be reconciled and forgive. That is the only way to kill the disease. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to forgive. We have to or it will destroy us. There's no option. We think that I can be angry at someone else and it only hurts them, but the reality is, is anger hurts us. And then it broods and grows inside of us and destroys everyone else we're around. We have to. We have to forgive. Well, what does that look like? Point two. Christ, the perfect example. The perfect example. Now this morning, um, as I make that application, I know that there's often the desire. I say, okay, it's important for you to forgive. And the next question is, okay, tell me how. Pastor Jeremy, give me six steps to better me. Or spell it out, tell me what to do. And I think we could develop that slightly this morning, but my personal preference is, rather than tell you what, I want to point you to who. Because the what might look different for each one of you, but the who is always the same. Here is the perfect example in Jesus Christ. And when we think about it, at this point, when we begin to say, okay, I think I know what to do, I've got it figured out, then in reality, we have already begun to err. For whether it is the Smiths, the Joneses, the Lobdells, the Adams, the Eves, the Canes, the Abels, the Isabels, the Joris, or whoever, no one has ever fully been able to resist the pull of sin. Consequently, at the end of the day, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous and we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. So what do we do? Well, ask the same question that the Apostle asked in Romans chapter 7. Who then will deliver us from this body of sin and death? Thanks be to God for His only Son, Jesus Christ. He is, in fact, the last man standing. He is the perfect example of what we should be. Now, let me pause there and give you a little side note. I want to be really careful theologically about when I say the perfect example. Because nowadays, there's all different theories of the atonement. And one of those is called the example theory. So what happens is sometimes... And it's not all with liberal theologians, but sometimes with liberal theologians, what they'll do is they'll take the life of Christ and say, oh yeah, he's a great guy, he's a good example, we should all try to be like that. So too is Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and you know all these other good people. Mother Teresa, whoever, they're all good. This is the example theory, it's the ultimate example of how we should live. But when I say the example, I don't mean that in any way whatsoever. Because in reality, Christ is more than just a mere ethical model. 
He is in fact physical and tangible payment for sin. His body, his blood are our redemption. That is why in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 it says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The purpose of Jesus coming to earth is not just to be a moral example, but is in fact to pay the price for our sins and shed his blood on the cross. That's why he came. That's totally and completely unique to him. Although we would all say we want to be Christ followers, we want to follow in his example, none of us can do that. Our blood is not sufficient to pay for sin. Only Jesus is. His blood is sufficient His sacrifice is effective and His resurrection more powerful than all of our sins. And that is why He came. He came to give His life as a ransom. So He had a unique purpose, but He also has a subsequent example purpose as well. But the example is not the main. The main is the redemption. That is what theologians call penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, he paid the penalty. Substitute, he took our place. Atonement, he made us right with God. That's different than just being an example. So here is Jesus. He is our example. He paid the price for our sins. He shows us what it is like to live perfectly, to love perfectly, and to forgive. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given to us. So then, what does that look like? Well, verse 16 tells us. Verse 16, this is John 3.16. This is 1 John 3.16. This is John 3.16 boiled down to its most simple and bare elements. John 3.16 is spelled out in 1 John 3.16 as this. By this we know love. What is love? What is it? This is that. Love, by this we know love, is that He laid down His life for us. At the cross, you see the absolute perfect display of love. It is both justice and mercy, holiness and wrath, righteousness and judgment, love and all. It is perfect. It is beautiful. It is not mere sentimentalism which says, whatever, you know, warm fuzzies, who cares, it's all good. No, it's just. But at the same time, it's not pure wrath that just says, I hate you and I want to kill you. No, it is merciful. It is the absolute perfect balance of all things good in one single spot. Justice and mercy. Love and wrath. Everything all wrapped up in one. This is the example that we're looking at. Christ giving His life on the cross. That is the contrast then between Christ and Cain. What does Cain do? He takes life. What does Christ do? He gives His life. And so too with us. If we want to truly demonstrate what real love is, it is our obligation To give. To give. To give of our time, our talents, our treasures, our resources, everything. Just give. 
Now, I'll tell you a funny story. It, as, a, as a pastor in church leadership, uh, sometimes, you know, everybody wants their church to grow and everybody wants their church to look good. And so the temptation is, is to figure out what will draw in the most people. And there's different gimmicks and tricks and methods and philosophies as to what's best. And one of the things that you'll see sometimes as you watch various churches is they'll say something like, they want people to come, so they'll say, we are the friendliest church in town. <laughs> you know, Come here, you will feel so welcome. We are so friendly. And other churches will say, we're the happiest church in town. We're always happy. Everybody just be happy. Come here, you'll be happy. That'll be awesome. But what's interesting is you've probably never seen one that's actually said, we are the most generous church in town. Come here and we will give. Now, let me tell you, if you did, I think you'd be full, right? People would come if they knew, hey, man, I'm hard up. Yeah, sure, here you go. It's 20 bucks. Boom. Whoa. I like this place. Come back. Hey, I'm hard up. No problem. Here's some more. Now, wait a minute. I know we don't want to be enablers and we need to help people in ways that are even greater than just financial. But I'm using this over the top illustration to try to make the point to say the the way in which the Bible demonstrates love that Jesus says is a perfect way is to give, to be generous. Truly, you would be the most loving church in town if you were the most generous church in town. But there are a lot of ways you can be generous, right? And it has not to do just with your financial resources, but all kinds of stuff. And instead of saying, you know, just how much money do I give, you can ask a different question. You can say, in what ways have I contributed to their lives? What contributions have I made? There are all kinds of ways to make contributions. You can do so with your time. You can do so with your talents. You can invest in people in so many different ways other than money. And then when we look at that, we can ask the question and say, okay, what would people say of me? If, if someone were to ask them, hey, what is this person like? Would they say, yeah, I know that if I've got a problem, I can go to them. That they are willing to help. They're excited to hear from me. They don't consider it an interruption or an imposition, but instead... They have a yes face, and I know that they will contribute to my life in any way that they can. That's generous. That's giving. And that's the example that Christ is painting for us in the cross. At the cross, he did multiple things. He paid. He actually used a monetary transaction. He gave a ransom for our sin, but he also gave his life. He gave his time. He taught his disciples. He invested in them. In every way, Christ gave. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. Christ, the perfect example. Now you have Cain, the negative example. Christ, the perfect example. And now, number three, verses 19 through 24, the Christian, the Christian, our comfort and our command. Verse 16 of John 3, 16, or 1 John 3, 16 says, By this we know love, 
that he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. And then it follows it with the second command. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. This is what I was referring to earlier in the um, generosity section. So I'm just going to move on to the next piece, which is this. Here's the comfort. As we do so, as we lay down our lives for our brothers, it becomes clear that we are followers of Christ. So previously, it's sort of the, you know, it's the, the encouragement and the command to do better. And it feels a little bit convicting at times, like, yeah, I've always, haven't always done that like I should. And maybe I need to do more of that. Maybe I need to be less angry. Maybe I need to be more giving. But now, at the end, after he's walked us through that, comes probably the most encouraging and comforting and strengthening portion of all. And that is this. Listen to how this works. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you because it's a little bit hard to follow in your Bibles. But through this passage, there's this phrase called, we know. And it shows up several times. And what it's doing is it's giving you the assurance. It's saying, by this you know. Here's how you know. Here's how you are encouraged. Here's how you are comforted. Verse 14. By this we know that we have passed from death to life. Verse 16. By this we know love. And now, verse 19. By this we know that we are of the truth and our hearts are reassured before Him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. This is a mind-blowing encouragement. This is astronomical because I don't know about you, but as I look at my life, hey, it's easy to struggle with guilt. I don't get it all right. I get upset. I get angry. I'm a guy. And I listen to this passage and it says, man, anger is murder. And I go, oh, man. Who have I killed? Did I kill somebody today? Did I tear them apart? Ah, I don't want to do that. Lord, I'm not, I, how do I even know that I'm a Christian if I'm a murderer? And this is how we know. By this we know that even though we sin, God is greater than our hearts. For even when our own hearts condemn us, God is stronger. And by His Spirit, which He puts inside of us and convicts us and draws us to Himself, He regenerates us and glorifies Himself through our repentance and changed hearts. It is through this very thing that we know that we are of God. Not that we are absolutely perfect. John already takes that in consideration. 1 John 1, 9, the beginning of the book, says if we confess our sins. He starts with the idea and premise that you're going to mess up. He knows you're not perfect. Now that doesn't let you off the hook, but at the same time, Jesus provides the remedy. He is both the remedy and the response. You know what anger is. Anger is just the unrighteous response to pain. It's what you do to defend or protect yourself. You get mad. Watch a little boy who's embarrassed when he falls off his bike. Is he going to cry? No. 
He's going to get up and I'm mad, you know? He could cry because his knee is bleeding and he's hurt, but he's not going to. Because he's responding with anger to overcome the pain. In your life, when you respond with anger, you're just responding unrighteously to pain. But the righteous response is not anger, but instead an appeal to Jesus Christ. And you can honestly say to him, oh Lord, that hurt. Man, I, somebody else hurt me. I hurt somebody else. I messed up. God, oh, this is awful. Please help. Lord Jesus, heal and deliver me. Because my soul hurts and there's pain and I want to lash out. God, will you please help? Likewise then, Romans tells us this. Here's what happens. When you respond like that, that's responding well. And the next six steps may be different for different people, and we may not even know what they are. But we don't have to worry because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For even when we don't know what to do, even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit Himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And God is greater than our hearts, so he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes for us, the saints, according to the will of God. And then when we mess up and we're all worried about it, we can actually sit down, step back, calm down, whatever, and know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His saving purposes. God loves you. God loves you. And it's really that simple. The command throughout this book has been to love one another, but it's not on you as this moral imposition. Instead, it's a response to the love that you have seen poured out at the cross. And as you look at your life and you say, oh, that's a mess, I messed up, I don't want to commit murder, I want to be like Jesus... What you do is you look to the cross and say, okay, there it is. That's it. I see the cross. It's perfect. There's where I'm going. And when I'm hurt and I want to lash out or I don't know what to do, it's right back to the same place every single time. You run to the cross. You confess your sins. And you respond to Him who gave His life a ransom for you. And say, oh God, I love you. Man, I love you. Thank you. I'm so sorry for every single time I don't love you and I hate someone else. Change me. Remake me. Forgive me. Work in only ways that you can by your spirit at work in me. And by this then I will know that you are there because you are greater even than my own heart. God help. Here we are. Broken Sinners, unrighteous, imperfect, trying to do our best, but trusting ultimately in Christ. Because as you go back to this passage, guess what you see? That same verse that says, hey, love one another, love one another, love one another, you know what it starts with? This then is the command. What is the command? What comes first? Take a look and see if you see it. Verse Verse 23. This then is the commandment. Does he go straight to love one another? No. What's the first command? That we believe 
in the name of his son Jesus. That's where it starts. And from there, everything else moves out. It's in fact a single command. This is the command. Believe in Jesus and love one another. Cain, the negative example. Christ, the perfect example. The Christian, our command and comfort. All at the same time. The command is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not just from hellfire, but from every challenge you face on a daily basis, Jesus can save you. Respond well, give it back to Him, and allow Him to overcome. And after that, it's simple. All you do is love one another. Father, we're thankful for Your grace. Lord, you're perfect and we're not. We mess up all the time and sometimes our hearts uh, run us around in circles and play games. And it's discouraging and difficult. But we pray, God, for your comfort. Help us not to get upset or be rude or angry or mean or kill one another. But instead, Lord, by your grace, help us to forgive and believe in you. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the ultimate example of forgiveness and love. In his name we pray. Amen.